Wang Ming Dao was born in 1900, and that's him. He's born during the Boxer Rev- Uprising in China. The uprising was a revolt against foreign influences, destroying ancient Chinese traditions. His family was in deadly danger because they had associated with Christian missionaries. So much danger that his Ming Dao's father killed himself prior to his birth. He accepted Christ at age 14 and lived a life of no compromise. He lived with so much personal integrity that even his worst enemies could not, couldn't find no fault in him. In 1937, he built a tabernacle, a house of worship he built for the devoted Christians of China. During the Japanese occupation of China, he built his own coffin in preparation for his own certain execution. After World War II, the communists took over. And in 1954, Mang Dao calmly listened as the Communist Party brought charges against him. Though they could not get a verdict against him, Ming Dao went home that night knowing he would be arrested. He preached his last tabernacle sermon in August of 1954 and afterwards handed out copies of his spiritual manifesto. Around midnight, Ming Dao, his wife, and 18 young Christians were taken into prison. He was charged with resistance to the government. After a period of intense brainwashing and torture, Ming Dao renounced his faith and was subsequently released. Upon regaining his bearings and realizing what he had done, he walked the streets wailing, I am Peter. I have betrayed my Lord. I'm Peter. I've denied my Lord. And he just kept walking around saying, I am Peter. I have denied my Lord. Ming Dao was immediately sent back to prison and was not released until 1980, at which point he was old, toothless, and deaf. By all accounts, a living martyr for his faith. For those of you following along, we're in week three of our saint series or November Saint Series, where we learn more about a faithful follower of Christ and how we can apply these life lessons to our own life. In week one, we learned about God's grace grace through the, God, through the teachings of Brendan Manning. And last week, we learned about the importance of community as evidenced by the Good Samaritan Rosa Parks. At this point, you may think this sermon is on the Saint Wing Meng Dao, and that would be an incredible sermon. It would be great subject matter for another day but you'd be wrong. You see, as I read Ming Dao's story, what jumped out at me the most was how he kind of came from, after he kind of came to himself and realized what he had said and what he had done. After his release from prison, he immediately identified with the Apostle Peter. The connection is fairly obvious because of Peter's famous denial at Christ's trial. But what made me feel connected to Ming Dao was the fact that I, in my own life, I've often found myself thinking those same words. I am Peter. Yesterday's saying is St. Peter, for I believe that all of us are Peter. And who is Peter? And what do we know about Peter? When Jesus first met Peter, his name was actually Simon. But Jesus had a better name for him. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea and Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? Well, they replied, some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah, others say Jeremiah or one of the other prophets. Then he asked them, but who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Jesus replied, you are blessed, Simon, son of John, because my Father in heaven has revealed this to you. You did not learn this from any human being. 
Now I say to you that you are Peter, which means rock. Upon this rock I will build my church, and all the powers of hell will not conquer it. And I will give the keys of the kingdom, you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you forbid on earth will be forbidden in heaven. Whatever you permit on earth will be permitted in heaven. Wow. Here we have Jesus himself declaring Peter as the founder of his church. In Acts 10, you can read about Peter converting the first Gentile, which is a non-Jew, to Christ. Namely, this is Cornelius, the Roman centurion, which was a huge deal back then. I mean, this guy was the leader of thousands of men, and Peter led the first Gentile to Christ. Post-resurrection, which is, of course, after Christ was crucified, rose from the dead, and ascended to heaven, Peter was also the first street preacher. When he and John were called before the council, and the council, of course, of the Jewish temple guard, and he was called before the council for preaching, Peter could only offer the following defense. Do you think God wants us to obey you rather than him? We cannot stop telling about everything we have seen and heard. Then the next chapter of Acts, chapter 5, comes after 4. The council asks Peter to take... The council takes another crack at cracking Peter and the apostles, this time flogging, which is a severe beating. They flogged them and ordered them never to speak in the name of Jesus again. What was Peter's reaction to this? The apostles left the high council rejoicing that God had counted them worthy to suffer disgrace for the name of Jesus. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they continued to teach and preach this message. Jesus is the Messiah. Peter was also a New Testament author writing the books, of course, First and Second Peter. The Catholic Church considers Peter to be the first pope. And finally, and there's many other things, but finally to wrap it up, church tradition holds that Peter was eventually martyred for his faith by being crucified upside down as he did not deem himself worthy to die in the same manner of Christ. So given all we've discussed so far, if Peter was such an amazing man, why did Big Dow, when he was at his lowest moment, say, I am Peter? Well, let's start by looking at Peter's humble beginnings. From Simon Peter's initial encounter with Christ. One day as Jesus was preaching on the shore of the Sea of Galilee, great crowds pressed in on him to listen to the word of God. He noticed two empty boats at the water's edge, for the fishermen had left them and were washing their nets. Stepping into one of the boats, Jesus asked Simon, Peter, its owner, to push it into the water. So he sat in the boat and taught the crowds from there. When he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Now go where it is deeper and let down your nest to catch some fish. Aster Simon replied, We worked hard all last night and then catch a thing. But if you say so, I'll let the nets down again. And this time their nets were so full the fish began to tear. The nets began to tear. A shout for help brought their partners to the other boat, and soon both boats were filled with fish and on the verge of sinking. When Simon Peter realized what had happened, he fell to his knees before Jesus and said, Oh, Lord, please leave me. I am such a sinful man. For he was awestruck by the number of fish they had caught, as there were others with him. His partner James and John, the sons of Zebedee, were also amazed. Jesus replied to Simon, Don't be afraid. From now on, you'll be fishing for people. And as soon as they landed, they left everything and followed Jesus. 
Christ could have chosen anyone to be his following disciples. Kings, rulers, governors, religious patriarchs, anyone. Anyone with large influence. He could have chosen anyone. Why on earth did he choose such a lowly fisherman? When historians studied the validity of the historical documents, one of the elements they analyzed is the potential motive of the original authors. What they might have what potential motive they might have had for fabricating, fabricating a false story. In other words, if the story sounds too good to be true, they assume it is. One of the things that has always given the gospel accounts credibility in reliable historical documents is the fact that no one attempting to start a large-scale movement would start with a fisherman. If you're trying to start a world religion, you don't call Brent. <laughs> you call someone like Kanye, or you call... You know, someone famous, somebody with some influence. You call the Pope. I mean, you don't call a nobody. But Jesus doesn't go that route. He calls a fisherman. Then we move on to some of Peter's foibles. I'm not sure if the gospel writers had it in for Peter or what, but the gospels are littered with Peter's mistakes and missteps, misspoken words. Mark 9, we go to the Mount of Transfiguration. Which, If you're wondering what in the world that is, here it is. Jesus took Peter, James, and John and led them up to a high mountain to be alone. As the men watched, Jesus' appearance was transformed and his clothes became dazzling white, far whiter than any earthly bleach. Then Elijah and Moses appeared and began talking with Jesus. Peter exclaimed, Rabbi, it's wonderful for us to be here. Let's make three shelters as memorials, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Kind of hidden there, so but... This comes just days after Peter declared in Mark 8, 29 that Christ was the Messiah. In this, Peter essentially equates the deity of Christ with that of Moses and Elijah by offering to build separate tabernacles for each. Wow. <laughs> A big misstep. I mean, Peter, imagine seeing that. Wouldn't you just sit there and take in the moment of what's going on? Wouldn't you just shut up and just... What is happening? But not Peter. He, he couldn't help himself. From John 13, we have the story of Peter initially refusing to have Christ wash his feet. And a little backstory before then, all the apostles were arguing over who was going to be greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Of course, Christ knows this conversation is going on. He walks in with the servant's towel and starts washing their feet. And when Christ gets to Peter, he offers to wash Peter's feet. And Peter's like, no, you aren't washing my feet. I don't deserve it. Which Jesus states, unless he washes Peter's feet, Peter will have no part with him. Well, Peter hears this, and he finally agrees. And at this point, he's asked for the full body cleanse. <laughs> but Jesus just washes his feet. Peter words, Peter's words are... Many times what I, what we would likely find ourselves saying if we were to approach what was going on with our own human eyes and perspective. From the word, from the time, this is before Jesus was about to be crucified, he was talking to the disciples. And from that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders. The chief priests, the teachers of the law, 
and that he must be killed raised on, and on the third day raised to life. Now think about this. We know the outcome. But who here not knowing the outcome would responded like Peter? No way, Lord. <laughs> That's not happening. Not on my watch, man. You're not dying. This brings us to Peter's most infamous misstep, the denial of Christ. I do not know the man. In all four Gospels, Peter proclaims he would never deny Christ when lay down his life for him. Find that in Matthew 26, Mark 14, Luke 22, and John 13. In an excerpt from that John 13 passage, we find Jesus say, Peter saying, But why can't I come now, Lord? He asked. I'm ready to die for you. Jesus answered, Die for me? I tell you the truth, Peter, before the rooster crows tomorrow morning, you will deny three times that you even know me. Now just imagine how heartbreaking this must have been for both Peter and Jesus. Think of your spouse, your child, your parent, your best friend. And tell them with a heartfelt, I'm with you. I'll lay down my life for you. And the response is, no, you won't. You're going to deny me. You're going to deny you even know me. And it breaks my heart to say that, but it's going to happen. Subsequently, all four Gospels also give an account of Peter denying Christ three times. Three of the four accounts note how Peter wept bitterly upon acknowledging his third denial. Put yourself there. You invested all your hopes, faith, dreams, aspirations. The changing of history have all been invested in this one man. And now you've denied him. What's more, this man's unjustly is going to have been unjustly accused, been tortured, and probably facing certain execution certain execution. This had to be the low point in Peter's life. So all this begs the question, how did this guy, this sometimes bumbling idiot, become the rock on which Jesus built his church? When did Simon become Peter? Peter the rock. I believe the answer is a first-hand witness of the resurrected Christ. What else other than seeing a man who you witnessed being put to death, later risen to life, could so completely transform a man? But, although Peter's transformation is one of the best evidences for the resurrection that I know of, this is our saint series. We don't study Peter this month as evidence of the resurrection. Instead, we look into Peter's life to study a man. So the bigger question isn't how Simon became Peter. The bigger question today is why. Why did Jesus pick Peter? What did Jesus possibly see in this common fisherman? You're trying to start a movement. If you're trying to change the world, why pick a nobody? I think the answer may be found all the way back in the Old Testament book of Judges. And if you haven't visited Judges for a while, you're probably not alone. (laughs) It is a good read, though. What we have in Judges, we have a relatively new nation of Israel. This is after the 400 years of enslavement in Egypt, captivity, after wandering the wilderness for 40 years, occupying the Holy Land, the Promised Land that God had given them, all done through many miracles of God that you've taken over this land and settled there. Years have passed. 
The Israelites at this point are like, okay, God, we got it from here. We don't need you anymore. In fact, the Bible says that they started to turn to, the, to, turn to evil. And because of that, God turned them over to the Midianites. The Midianites routinely plundered the Israelites. I mean, they took everything. They took their food. They took their, their livestock. They took everything. I mean, there was, there, was, there was no hiding from them. If they wanted it, they took it. And they const- constantly were plundering Israel. So, at this point, Israel finally realized they had reached the bottom. Like all of us, they say, <laughs> All right, God, I need help here. And God heard them. Angel of the Lord found a man, and he was hiding in the bottom of a wine press. And in there he was press, he was threshing wheat. Now just imagine that, hiding. He's hiding there because of the plundering that was taking place by the Midianites. It's the only way he could keep his own food at that point. He had to hide to eat it. And at that point, an angel of the Lord visited him. And he referred to him as mighty hero. Now, please don't miss the irony here. Picture yourself. If you're obviously hiding from someone, make it dramatic like you're hiding under the bed from somebody, and all of a sudden you're visited by an angel, and he says, man, you are so incredibly brave. <laughs> and that's what's going on here. It doesn't seem too heroic to be hiding from your enemy. but there Gideon was. Yes, Gideon. God commissioned Gideon to lead Israel against the Midianites. When Gideon received a clear message, it was he who was to lead. It was so illogical to choose him that he put God through multiple tests. One of the tests was, hey, God, I got this rug. I don't think you're really choosing me here. I'm going to put this rug outside. And if you're really choosing me, let it, the dew fall on the rug only and the ground to be bone dry in the morning. Sure enough, he gets up the next day, the ground's dry, he picks up the rug and squeezes out a whole pitcher full of water. That wasn't enough. You got God, God, be patient with me here. Just really, really, really want to know it's you. Let's do the rug trick again, except this time reverse it. All right? I want the rug to be dry, but I want dew to be everywhere. So he goes out the next morning, sure enough, Drugs bone dry. There's dew all over the grass. So, all right, that was finally. You know, all right, you're calling me, God. Okay, what do you got? Finally, once he was convinced that God was calling, Gideon organized his army. And he organized it only to have God pare it down to 300 men. He sent over 32,000 men home that he originally organized for his army. I believe 22,000 were sent home when Gideon, when God told Gideon, say, hey, if your heart's not in this, go home now. And 22,000 went home. So that had to be a little terrifying. And then the last few were filtered out when they drank the water from the lake, those who bent over to drink versus those who cupped it and pulled it up to their mouths. When it was all said and done, there was only 300 left. Yes, an army of 300 against one of the most powerful armies on earth. God won. I believe the story goes, I mean, that, that when they went to attack <laughs> with 300 men against an army, God turned the Midianites on each other. 
and they ended up wiping each other out. Which begs the question, why did God choose Gideon and his army of 300 men? Maybe it turns out the answer is right there in Judges 7-2. And this verse was written when the army was 32,000 strong. God says to Gideon, you have too many warriors with you. If I let you fight the Midianites, the Israelites will boast to me that they saved themselves by their own strength. So you can follow, too, that Jesus also chose a lowly fisherman to be his disciple to change history. To change the world. To show such a work that be done by God and God only. And that transformation can be done to and through anyone that he chooses. So how do we respond to this and what is the point of all this? When I consider why Jesus would have picked Peter, I think that verse in Judges is the only answer that makes sense. When you look at who Peter became, you look at all that he accomplished, the only logical explanation is God. God did it. Peter would have been voted least likely to change the world in his high school yearbook. So when you look at Peter's life and ask the question, why is the Basilica in Rome named after a fisherman? Well, it wasn't because he was a master angler. The answer is because God. So what does this mean to me? What does this mean to you? It means I am Peter, and you are Peter. Are you a nobody? Have you messed up a few things in your life? You ever turned from your faith and said, Nope, I'm not doing that today. I'm, I'm carrying this misery with me. I'm carrying this grudge. I'm mad. Have you been there? Have you ever spoken when you should have just shut up? you ever been quiet when you maybe should have intervened? And you're Peter. I am Peter. Ming Dao was Peter. And this is the last story I'd like to share from the Bible regarding Peter. And it comes after Christ is resurrected. It is found in the very last chapter of John, John 21. Later, Jesus appeared to the disciples besides the Sea of Galilee. This is how it happened. Several of the disciples were there. Simon Peter, Thomas, nicknamed the twin, Nathaniel from Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two other disciples. Simon Peter said, I'm going fishing. We'll come too, they all said. So they all went on the boat. They caught nothing all night. At dawn, Jesus was standing on the beach. The disciples couldn't see who he was. He called out, fellows, have you caught any fish? No, they replied. Then he said, throw your net on the right-hand side of the boat. You'll get some. So they did, and they couldn't haul in the net because there were so many fish in it. Then the disciple who Jesus loved, John, said to Peter, it's the Lord. Then Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord. He put on his tunic, where he had stripped for work, jumped in the water, and headed to shore. The other stayed in the boat and pulled the load the loaded net to the shore, for they were only a hundred yards from the shore. When they got there, they found breakfast waiting for them, fish cooking over a charcoal fire and some bread. Bring some of the fish you just caught, Jesus said. Simon Peter went aboard and dragged the net to the shore. There are 153 large fish, and yet the net hadn't torn. Now come and have some breakfast, Jesus said. None of the disciples dared ask him, Who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Then Jesus served them bread and fish. 
This was the third time Jesus had appeared to the disciples since he had been raised from the dead. After breakfast, Jesus asked Simon Peter, I'm going to have trouble with this. I'm telling you right now. Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, Peter replied. You know I love you. Feed my lambs, Jesus told him. Jesus repeated the question, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Yes, Lord, Peter said. You know I love you. And take care of my sheep, Jesus said. Third time he asked him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was hurt. And Jesus asked him a question the third time. He said, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said, and feed my sheep. In first question, why do you suppose Jesus asked Peter three times if he loved him? Probably because of the three-time denial. Is Peter attempting to go back to his old life and comfort zone of fishing? Jesus is like, Peter, what are you doing, man? This is not what I've called you for. This is not what I've prepared you for. So what about you? Are you living outside your comfort zone? Or are you fulfilling the great commission of Christ? The most powerful thing about Peter is the reminder that God can and does change the world through people like us. And I debated whether to do this next part, and this is totally off script and unapproved by Chris, so... It bombs, it's on me. But I'm going to come down here. And have a seat. And picture yourself. Picture these two stools sitting in a room. Close your eyes and picture these two stools sitting in a room. You're taking up one of them. Sitting there all by yourself. You hear the door open. It's Jesus. Jesus starts to get up. No, 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 don't get up. Don't get up. I just want to talk to you for a minute. He comes over and he has a seat right across from you. You look in his eyes for just a second, just a split second. You look in his eyes and you can see. You can feel and you know he knows everything about you. He knows your every thought. He knows your every deed. He knows everything you've ever done in that split second. He knows every hair on your head and you have nothing to hide. So you look down at your feet. And you hear him ask the question. He calls you by name. He says, do you love me? He says, do you love me? Sure, Lord. Yeah, I love you. Of course I love you. And he asks you again, do you love me? Well, this time it hurts. Do you not think I love you, God? Of course I love you. You know everything. You know my heart. You search my heart. Don't you know I love you? 
this point, he reaches out and puts his, he puts his finger under your chin and lifts, his, lifts your head up and you're looking him in the face. Your heart just melts like wax. You are broken in his presence. And he asks you one more time, do you love me? Yes, Jesus, I love you. Then feed my sheep. Feed my sheep. Feed yourself. Are you sitting around watching TV and video games and whatever for hours on end and not spending 30 seconds in my word? Not spending a minute on your knees in prayer before me? Where are you putting your priorities? Where are you putting your treasures? Are you listening to music all day, filling your head full of vile, contentable things done to my daughters? Are you cursing my name? Where's your heart? Feed my sheep. Come out from among them. I love you. And I know you love me. And I know you need my grace. My grace is sufficient. Lean on me. My burden is light. And I have so, so, so much for you. So as we come to the end of all this, I pray (laughs) that it uh, did something. And as Chris comes up for communion, just search your hearts before you partake in the communion. If you're holding a grudge, if you're holding unforgiveness, let it go. Let it go. God is saying today, let it go.